Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Laura Ansley, the managing editor at the American Historical Association, about the American Historical Association and her work editing Perspectives. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks for having me, Christina. I am really glad you're here, and I'm really glad that we get to um, talk about this important organization that supports the work of historians. But to start us off, would you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a historian of the 19th and 20th century U.S. I uh, primarily work on the history of sexuality and history of childhood. So um, I went to grad school at the College of William and Mary. Um, I started in 2010, where I um, attended planning to go onto the tenure track like so many people. Um, And I got through comps and I was writing a dissertation on the history of sex education in the United States um, from 1890 to 1930. And I got in pretty far along. I was in year six when I decided that actually I didn't want to finish the PhD. Um, so I left my PhD program in 2016. Um, I spent about a year underemployed working at the local public library while I was job searching. And eventually I ended up in uh, association publishing, which was something I wasn't super familiar with going into grad school, but um, has ended up being a really great career path for me. So I spent two years uh, working in the journal's uh, production department at the American Society of Civil Engineers. And then I moved to the American Historical Association, the AHA, uh, in September of 2019. Um, So that's been my path for my career so far. I've been at the AHA for a bit over a year. Um, And at the AHA, I work uh, primarily with Perspectives on History, our monthly uh, news magazine. I also do some other work where it comes to our booklets program and um, coordinating some of our other publications. but yeah, that's that's about it. Thank you for sharing that. If we could circle back a little bit, um, what led you to history? And when you when you picked it, and then when you went on to grad school, did you think that you would become a professor? Did you think you would go all academic? What was the path that you envisioned? And then how did that change? So I think like a lot of people, I came, a lot of at least our people, historians, I came into college loving history. I had, unlike a lot of people, loved my classes in history in high school. Um, I had always loved reading about history and historical fiction. And so I came to college um, where I, I attended Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, which has a really fabulous history department, um, but is also much more of a science and engineering institution. And so I actually started college as a history major who was pre-med, which is a little unusual. Um, But after one year, I realized I wasn't enjoying my science classes and I was loving all the history classes. So I ended up dropping the pre-med and I double majored in American studies, which as a um, someone focusing on U.S. history, it it kind of went hand in hand. And um, pretty quickly, I realized that I wanted to go to graduate school school for history after that change, because I realized there was so much more to know. And I was interested in reading more and learning more and eventually um, producing history. Um, And at the time, I mean, 
like so many great professors, my professors said, you know, there's the job market, the academic job market can be a little rough. So you may want to think about other career paths, or maybe you want to take a year off in between school, um, just to see what other ideas or paths are out there. And I said, no, I think I really want to do this. Uh, Also, like a lot of people. So I did go straight from undergrad into my MA PhD program at William & Mary, um, which I've actually never regretted. I, despite leaving grad school without finishing, I don't really know what I would have done with a year or two off because this is what I really wanted to do. And during grad school, I felt like I got some really amazing um, professional training that without that training, I would not be where I am now. So at William & Mary, the master's program includes, most students do um, an apprenticeship and um, I did an apprenticeship with the Omaha Hunter Institute of Early American History and Culture, which is a um, organization that publishes the William Mary Quarterly Journal, as well as has, uh, they have a books program that they publish with UNC Press. And as a editorial apprentice, I got the editorial training that most people don't get anymore, um, unless you just start, you know, as an editorial assistant, the ground floor at a, at a press. This is the kind of training that is hard to come by these days. So we learned Chicago Manual of Style inside and out. I learned about how a journal functions and how book publishing works from the inside, from the people actually doing the publishing. And that turned out to be invaluable training, even though that was my master's year and I wasn't applying for editorial jobs until five or six years later, I still was able to, to lean on that training um, because I had kind of the, the fundamentals instilled in me by the wonderful people at the OI. Um, I also, I, I enjoyed my time in graduate school for the most part. The, by the time I left, I was frankly struggling a little bit with some mental health issues of anxiety about what I was gonna do and like, why was I even getting this degree? And that really helped once I decided I was gonna leave, it was good to know that, that I had a foundation of knowledge and skills that I could lean on, even though I wasn't going into the path that I had originally planned at 22 years old. And that path was to be a professor? Uh, yeah, to work in some sort of history area, probably as a professor. I never really wanted to do teaching in the K through 12 arena because I've honestly never been great with kids. Uh, So that was not something that really interested me. I could have seen myself maybe doing museums, but of course that itself requires specialized training and internships and things like that. Um, So I really feel like I've ended up in a happy place where I get to work with historians all the time, edit their work, you know, help to shape the kind of things that they're putting out into the world, especially things that are accessible for the public. Both my work at the AHA and volunteer work I do with the blog project Nursing Clio, a lot of it is aimed at the public or at least at a level where an upper level high school student, a, a, a lower level undergraduate would be able to understand it and hopefully, you know, get something out of it. And you can speak the historian's language when you're speaking to the people who are submitting to you when you're sending revision notes and you can translate it into the public arena leaning on sort of how museums translate things to the general public or uh, other 
uh, programs do as well. And so you're able to straddle both worlds and talk to both audiences. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I like most about my job now. When I was working with the civil engineers, of course, I knew I was doing important work because these were journal articles that were about how to safely build bridges and how to evaluate the strength of concrete and water sanitation and roads and all kinds of very important stuff. The things that really hold our society together in terms of infrastructure, in terms of just, you know, the the spaces around us. But I didn't understand what I was reading. It was academic engineering. And so it was a lot of you know, upper level math calculus. Um, you know, I was able to figure out if the copy editing was what done well because like sentence structure doesn't change between sciences and the humanities. But I didn't feel like I had the same kind of connection to the material the way that now that I work back with historians, it doesn't matter if it's about US history or if it's about medieval era Europe or about China or about Latin America. There's an interesting facet to all of it that as historians, we can always find something cool to learn about in these pieces. And um, at the same time, I also get to work a lot with people on their professional issues. Um, you know, we, we publish a lot of teaching pieces in perspectives where people are giving um, first-person accounts about a, an assignment that they tried or a type of class that they taught or um, museums and archivists and other people in in historical fields that aren't necessarily teaching in the classroom, but are are educating in other spaces. And so it's it's been really rewarding to work with people across the spectrum of, of historians and what historians do. You know, these are not just tenure track professors who are historians. These are people in all kinds of work from the federal government to museums, to archives, to um, even, you know, journalists and things like that. Um, so it's working at the AHA really opens your eyes to all the places that historians work um, and how much how much bigger our community actually is than many of us might assume. So by leaving ABD, you actually opened up a bigger world for yourself. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I know so much more now about um, the places historians work, the kind of history that's out there. Um, the different sectors that people can take these skills and work in, even if they're not working on historical projects. Um, I've learned a lot about the ways that people take what we learn as historians, whether that's at the undergraduate major level or MAs or PhDs. Um, yeah, it really, it's really opened up a lot of possibilities um, that I, I appreciate getting to see that and getting to see the success that people have in different areas. And especially at a time when it seems like history education and history understanding of the past is more important than ever. Um, you know, we're recording this a week and a half after the Capitol insurrection. It's, it's clear that this is the kind of context and information and understanding that Americans and actually people all over the world need. Yes, Twitter is a buzz with historians saying, see, we are relevant. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So if we can unpack a couple of things, um, you use the term association publishing. Can you explain for listeners what that means? Sure. So the uh, American Historical Association is a professional association. It's an organization um, made up of members who pay dues and staffed by people who then provide uh, services and programming for members and non-members alike. So association publishing is the arm of 
associations like the AHA. You can also think of the OAH or, you know, uh, basically every subfield has their own <laughs> association, right? Legal history societies, immigration history, political history, diplomatic history. Um, we can we can all think of the many associations. And a place like the AHA, where we have a publishing program, um, which includes the AHR, the American Historical Review, which is our flagship journal, though they do have a staff that works um, separately from us in the D.C. area. They're based out of Bloomington, Indiana. Um, the Perspectives on History News Magazine, which comes out nine months a year, basically the academic calendar, and uh, publishes online all year round. And then a number of other things, like we have a directory of history departments, which is part of what we do. We do things like the annual meeting program, the big conference that the AHA puts on every year. Um, the association publishing arm kind of takes care of all of the printed, a lot of the online materials that come out of the AHA. And so your primary job there is to be the managing editor of Perspectives, is that correct? I'm the managing editor for the AHA as a whole. I don't work on the AHR because they do have a separate staff, but otherwise I um, handle a lot of the logistics for all of the rest of our um, publications. The majority of my time is spent on Perspectives because it is a monthly publication. Um, but for example, we're rebooting our booklets program right now. So I'm going to be soon spending a lot of time on figuring out what topics we want to cover and which authors we may want to reach out to to work on that with us. Um, and I coordinate the production aspect of a lot of our print and uh, online publications. So the way I think of it as the managing editor, I'm in charge of kind of keeping a lot of our publications connected to each other. So when that comes to making sure we have a house style that makes sense in terms of, you know, your grammar and your usage and the words we use, when that comes to um, making sure all of our production timelines are on time, that's a lot of what a managing editor does in this position. Um, it's a lot of different things. <laughs> Can you take us through a day in the life or if that's uh too difficult, what a typical week would be like with the understanding that we're taping during a pandemic and typical is no longer a idea yeah. that any of us try to <laughs> try to uh, force upon ourselves. Yes, the AHA has been entirely remote since last March. So we're on month, I guess we're entering month 11 of all of us being at home. So we do have a townhouse office in, in DC, four blocks from the Capitol building. Um, but we are all at home and have been for nearly a year at this point. Um, a typical day, I mean, I can talk you through what I've done this week. Um, we're currently in production mode for the February issue of Perspectives, meaning that um, the articles have been edited, they have been um, sent to typesetting, and we're getting proofs back from the typesetter. So that means they're, they've been taken from the Word doc that they've been written in and made into the format that they'll look like in the magazine. And then we get to do all the fun stuff of reviewing the proof, making sure there aren't any mistakes that have been introduced in the typesetting, making sure that the formatting all looks okay. We then send those proofs to the authors to make sure that the authors also see them before they're printed and approve uh, that, you know, they don't see any issues or typos or anything like that. Um, and then there's a couple layers of that kind of approval. So we do that with individual articles and then with the magazine as a whole, once everything is typeset. Um, and then I do other things like um, 
as we're heading into printing the magazine, I have to contact our membership uh, manager and get our the labels and addresses for all the people that are going to get a an issue of Perspectives in the month of February. So she checks our membership database and gives me a, a file that has all of that information. I contact the print shop and say, here's all of that information. Here's how many pages the issue is. Um, this is our timeline, that kind of thing. And um, I also coordinate a lot of the work that goes back and forth with the typesetter. And they are actually located in India. Um, so that can be interesting, coordinating work with people that are halfway across the globe. And I think 10 and a half hours ahead of us, um, time zone wise. Um, so it's a lot of coordinating things back and forth between people and making sure it all works out. We're also at pretty much every time working on more than one issue at once. So while we're typesetting February, we're working on editing the articles for March. So Ashley Bowen, the editor of the magazine and I, uh, kind of split up most of the editing between the two of us. So uh, this week I've been looking at obituaries for the month of March. I've been looking at some other articles that are going to be going in the magazine, as well as editing some of our online-only content, because we do also have um, shorter blog pieces that go up online. Um, and then there's other stuff. So we have an in-house editorial board that reads everything that goes in print um, to make sure that it's of a high quality, that the pieces, um, you know, are saying something new about history or teaching or professional life or whatever. Um, and we had that meeting on Wednesday that happens twice a month. Um, and because we're a small organization, there's only just over 20 people who work at the AHA. I also get to participate in other things at the AHA. So this week, um, Let's see, we've got the virtual AHA programming going on, which um, because we had to cancel our uh, January 2021 annual meeting, we've been doing virtual AHA from last September through this coming June. So I sit on the um, working group committee of people that, that's that been uh, coordinating and planning all of that. Um, so there are meetings like that occasionally. And also as the managing ad excuse me, managing editor, I also kind of keep my eye on what's going on in other departments as well. So, you know, I sit in on academic and professional affairs department meetings to see if they're working on anything that's publication related or things that we may want to talk about in the magazine um, kind of goes both ways. Um, so there's a lot of collaboration, a lot of consultation between people in different departments. Um, that's one of the great joys of working at a place that's so small is, um, you get to experience a lot of different things and have a say in a lot of different things. And if people want to submit to you for perspectives, what's on your wish list? Oh gosh. Um, so perspectives publishes on pretty much anything related to history. So whether that is historical research, whether that is teaching and learning or professional issues. Those are kind of the three big pillars of the AHA. Um, we're open to it all. I will say that we would love to get more pitches from people on areas outside of the United States in terms of their research focus. So more things on Latin America, on Africa, on Asia, and also time periods before, let's say about 1800. We get a lot of modern history. Um, and some of that has to do with just the 
the skew of what historians work on. There are more people who work on modern topics than um, early modern or pre-modern, but um, we're really trying to figure out how much of these different areas we're publishing on and then do better in terms of um, showing a more diverse picture of what historians work on, what history is. So people can always pitch perspectives. You can email us at perspectives at historians.org. Um, and there's information on the AHA Perspectives website with um, what we look for in submissions. Um, but the main things to remember about Perspectives is that it's supposed to be an accessible magazine, right? So this is not necessarily academic writing. Um, we want it to be something that anyone could stumble across this on the web or pick up the magazine in a history department if it's sitting out um, and be able to read an article and learn something. If you could give one piece of advice to listeners who are listening to this episode and they're interested in history and they can't see the future, because none of us can, but also right now guessing what the future is, is so confusing. Would you encourage people to continue to study history? And if so, why? Absolutely. People should continue to study history. Um, I think people should study more history. Um, We've spent years with a lot of the rhetoric coming from state governments and from um, nonprofits and even the federal government about how important STEM fields are, you know, science, technology, engineering, um, math, also medicine. Um, and there's been so, such a de-emphasis on the humanities that I think we're really losing out on people understanding how things work. And this is how we keep ending up with things like... Um, <laughs> facial recognition software where people start to realize, wait, this sounds like 19th century phrenology, where people believe that the shape of your head said something about your personality or about perhaps your criminality. Um, there's a lot that we need history to understand. And I think the Capitol insurrection is the perfect example, right? I mean, this has just happened last week, so it's on all of our minds. And at Perspectives, we were lucky that we were able to publish quickly two pieces the week after about some of the historical understanding that people need. So the first one was co-written by Kevin Boyle of Northwestern and Jim Grossman, the AHA executive director. And they talked about some of the U.S. context for what happened at the Capitol. And they, they thought of it as a a starting point for teaching what happened. So if, if you're entering a classroom this week with high schoolers or college students and they want to know, like, what just happened in, in Washington, you know, you need to turn to the history of the Civil War. You need to turn to Reconstruction, to Jim Crow, um, to all of these very complicated histories in the U.S. And the second day, we were able to publish a piece from Matt Gabriel, who's a professor of uh, religious studies at Virginia Tech, who is a very uh, active Twitter user. Um, and he is frequently talking about why white supremacists and white nationalists have turned to these medieval uh, symbols and imagery um, from the Vikings, from the Crusades, um, everything from Braveheart to Knights Templar flags. And Matt was able to write a piece really quickly about the kinds of imagery we saw coming out of the Capitol um, and, and why it is that this these groups have embraced this kind of imagery. Um, and I, I hope that it, it brought something new to the conversation. Um, 
And the AHA actually compiled very quickly a day within 24 hours of the insurrection, compiled a list of, of the kinds of articles that we hope would help people in the classroom, a, a, a teaching resource list um, that people could turn to when their students ask, what is going on and what do I need to know to understand it? So I think that history is vital to every historical moment, but especially right now in the midst of a pandemic, um, you know, a lot of people have been turning to the 1918 flu, to uh, the Black Death, to various other plague situations in the past. Um, the history of vaccines is obviously important. I mean, I say this as someone who works a lot in the history of medicine, um, since I am also the managing editor at Nursing Clio, a blog that works on history of gender and medicine, we've been getting pitches for close to a year now about the many different ways that the history of medicine, of health, of uh, gender issues, of racial disparity, help us to understand where we're, where we are now, where we're going. Um, I, yeah, I just, I think it's entirely vital. And I don't know that you'll find many historians today who will say, nah, that what we're doing doesn't really matter because it seems so prevalent and so at the forefront of nearly every day's news stories. I have noticed that previously people made excuses to not ask me questions. Uh, and now everybody's like, so Christina, can you explain this? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'll always have to give a caveat. Well, I'm not a political historian, but, you know, this is how I can I can explain it because the phrase I keep hearing over and over over the last few weeks is this is not who we are. And as historians, yeah. we're able to say it is who we are. I think what you're trying to say is it's not who you want us to be. Exactly. And for us to be able to deal with that awareness that's bubbling up in people now, hey, this is not who I want us to be. We need to understand how we got to this moment. Yeah. And even that's the great thing about studying history is that even though you're not an expert in political history, the skills you get studying any kind of history will help you to understand other kinds. Right. So I'm also not a political historian. As I said in the beginning, I studied sex education, which is obviously not relevant to the capital, to the pandemic necessarily, though it was a lot about syphilis. So actually, like disease stuff comes up a lot. Um but it's, it's amazing how the skills that we learn in terms of critical thinking, in terms of evaluating sources, is huge right now, right? There's so much information out there, and it's hard to tell sometimes what's going to be the final version of the story. We all saw that play out last Wednesday when there was all this conflicting information about what was happening at the Capitol. There were reports from inside and photos and it was and even now we're on like it's going to be years right until we figure out everything that was going on because there's going to be classified information there's going to be things that it's not safe for us to know right um so i i believe and i think the aha often advocates that studying history is about more than just knowing about knowing facts about the past right it's it's learning these skills digital literacy, uh, critical thinking, writing, communicating that you can use in all kinds of areas, not just, um, you know, working as a professional historian. And I, as you said, you know, people turn to historians in this time. Um, there have been so many op-eds written 
by wonderful historians of the U.S. and other um, historical backgrounds who are able to say, like, you know, this is this is what's going on. Um, these are the things from the past that might help us understand it. Um, and it's been amazing to see all of that work come out over the last, well, I mean, historians are always writing op-eds, but it's been especially urgent, I think, over the last year um, and over the last few weeks or since the election, really. When you were saying historians have always been writing op-eds, I was thinking about historians have always been writing, but it's usually just like our dad or our aunt who reads it. Yeah. Now, people, now people are like sharing it around social media or they're uh, asking asking historians they know for references. I've been, you know, texting pretty much everybody on my text list, you know, articles because I just keep getting all these texts like, did anyone see that? How could anyone have seen this coming? And I was like, oh, oh, I know the answer to that. <laughs> And it's funny because uh, you're right. And that, I mean, going back to work stuff, that is one of the things I love most is that the kind of writing that I get to work with historians on is the kind of writing we want your dad or your friend from high school to be able to to read and understand, right? This is not um, a journal article that's 30 pages. This is an article um, that's 1500 words. So it's, you know, you're able to sit and read it over your lunch break or whatever. Um, and I find that so interesting and exciting to be able to work with people in a a register of writing that not all historians are used to doing so a lot of times it's a it's a discovery for them about how to write for this kind of audience and this kind of um, publication but also b in something that could really have a very different reach than that 30 page journal article which will be read by the other experts in your field of course but aren't, again, is not going to go out to your dad or your friend from high school or um, whoever is not, you know, does not have a subscription to the leading journals in your field. Um, so I, I find that really exciting that that the work we do at Perspectives um, is something that really can get out there and, and make a difference in, in beyond just the historical profession and discipline. And journals tend to come out at a slower frequency. As you yeah. said, the articles can be, you know, 30 pages long, and then there's extensive footnotes and endnotes that have to be checked in bibliographies, and sometimes peer reviews have to happen. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a long, dense process to do a journal, but something that comes out monthly, and then you've referenced two different blogs that you're actively part of that mm -hmm. disseminate historical information quickly online, those can respond to people in, in more of a real-time answer. How does how does history help us understand this moment? And we can get you that answer right now. Exactly, um, and that's that. It, it, both of them have a place, right? The sure. the long work that goes into a journal article is really important, and it means that those journal articles are going to be able to endure for a long time. You know that they've been fact checked and they've been um, edited really well, and peer review is such an important process in uh, the historical work that we do. Um, but at the same time, you're right that the, the kinds of journal articles were, that we'll talk about, let's say the Capitol or the 2020 election or even the pandemic, it's gonna take time for that to get through those processes. So there's a place for all of this kinds, kind of communication and writing um, in, in the world at large and also within the historical discipline. And so it's really important to me that people recognize the, the validity 
of these kinds of different scholarship. Um, this is something that comes up a lot with people who are working in academia where, you know, they're on the tenure clock and they worry, is it more important that I get my book out immediately and that I have X number of peer-reviewed journal articles, but also I want to be able to work in this more public space, whether that's um, writing for a blog or writing op-eds or, um, say, working on a digital history project. All of it is valid historical work and important historical work. And so I hope that we've seen some movement on this over the years, but I, I hope that people continue to recognize how important all of this kind of communication is and also how it's a really great use of, of people's time to be able to sit down and write a succinct piece that makes a cogent and important point um, that helps people understand what's going on. It's, uh, it's, it's just, uh, I think, one, uh, along with teaching in the classroom or educational programs at museums, and the, it, it's one of the most important ways that we can reach the regular kind of the, the public and, and, and reach people with the work that we do. Having multiple kinds of resources to draw on is so important, whether you are what we think of as a professional historian, meaning, you know, a tenured professor, or you're uh, working more in a public uh, arena teaching history, having multiple kinds of resources to draw on is critically important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I'm so excited about the ways that people are doing different kinds of work these days. Like, um, there's been such an explosion of history podcasts in the last 10 years or so. For example, um, two of my friends who I work with at Nursing Clio also work on the Dig a History podcast uh, program, which puts out like four-part series on a theme. So right now they're in the midst of an election series, and they just so happen to have recorded a piece on the election of 1876, um, and they dropped it a few days early because of what happened at the Capitol last week. Um, it's it's that kind of work that can really um, get out there and 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 be used in classrooms, be used, as you said, when somebody texts and say, I don't know what's happening, you can send them a podcast link. Um, like the writing, the podcasting, the digital projects, all of it, I think, is is so interesting in the directions that people are finding new ways to communicate and to, and to teach about these important topics. And I found out about you in part uh, because of Christopher Katerine's book about leaving academia. Um, and he, he interviewed a number of people, but, but you left out at me as a, as a fellow historian. And so you've left academia, but not really. I mean, you have a very academic job. Um, but as someone who's not in the not in the professorate mm -hmm. and looking, however, at what is happening right now with higher ed, with funding issues, with accessibility issues and the future going forward, where do you see from your unique position, where do you see history is most likely going to be taught and shared going forward? Where are the avenues where you see that there's really there's going to be a lot of life and growth? That is so hard to say. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, as I said, it's a vital part of, a, of, I would say, anyone's education, of a liberal arts education and curriculum of, you know, it's important that people take the stuff as general education or 
what have you. Um, but it's so hard to say where it's going because it's, it's a tough time in academia. I mean, I am not in academia. I would say that working in a professional association as I do is maybe at best academia adjacent. Um, but a lot of my writers are in academia. A lot of the people we work with on things like our annual meeting, obviously, people who present and who serve on committees and things like that are in academia. And it's it's unpredictable, I would say. Um, but my hope is that people continue to find ways to work in historical fields. I think that that the idea of what that means has been broadening for a long time. You know, the AHA has been working on what we call the Career Diversity Initiative for Career Diversity for Historians, uh, excuse me, which is an initiative that looks at the different types of careers that people with graduate degrees in history can have. Um, so I think it's only for the best that we keep broadening the horizons of what history includes, what historians do, who is um, included as a historian, um, because that only helps everyone. What do you hope listeners will take away? Mm. One, I would say that um, getting your work out there in different arenas is, is good and fun and useful. So whether that's writing for a, a a place like Perspectives or a blog like Nursing Clio or um, working in other arenas, I think that's something to think about doing at any stage of your career, whether you're a graduate student or a tenured faculty member or someone who works in museums as a curator or an education uh, department. Thinking about the ways that you can get your work out there and, and, and encounter more people and engage more people is great. Um, the other thing I want people to remember is that um, you're not stuck in one path, even if that's what you've been planning for a long time. I was six years into graduate school. I had been dissertating for three years when I decided to leave. Um, and it, it was not a loss in my life that I do not have the letters PhD after my name. Um, I'm in a career that I love and uh, the kind of work that I love doing now. And I still get to work in, essentially in my field, right, with historians, um, just in a different way. One of the things that's been highlighted for all of us during the pandemic is how important community is and finding a community. And um, what is your advice for our listeners going into history um, for finding community? Um, so community is one of the most important things in my life, actually. Um, the Nursing Clio team that I work with is 16 editors who all work in some sort of field related to gender, health, medicine, something like that. And I've been working with that group since 2016, first as a writer, then as the social media coordinator for the blog, and eventually as an editor, and then now managing editor, um, which I've been doing for oh my gosh, almost four years. Um, and that group of people became such a, uh, they're, they're the first person I talk to about almost nearly anything, right? Like professional, 
problems, um, personal stuff. Like we have a very active Slack channel um, where we just go with all kinds of, you know, gripes and, and advice and whatever else. And so finding your people, whether that's at a conference, whether that's at a publication like, like I did. Um, and I actually ended up working with Nursing Clio because I met people in person at a conference. Um, I think that's so important. And at the same time, I mean, like those are some of the closest friends I have, but also finding that kind of professional community um, where you are comfortable and supported and like what you do and like the people you work with. You don't always agree on everything. You know, there are discussions that people have about um, which direction things should go and like what what you want to do next. But having a professional setting where you feel like you do good work and your work is respected and your expertise is expected, respected, excuse me, is is essential. And I feel like I found that at the AHA. It's a really um, great community of people who care passionately about uh, history, about education, about the the discipline and the people in it. Um, finally, the last thing I'd say for finding community is um, social media can actually be okay sometimes. Um, I found a lot of great connections through Twitter and through, um, well, mostly Twitter. I use Facebook, but I keep that pretty um, private and you know personal connections. But there are a lot of bad things about social media, but it also fosters a, a real community of people that I think are just very helpful. You know, there's a lot of people who want to offer advice or want to help you with projects or ideas um, and are just like friendly people and want to send you, you know, puppy pictures or whatever. So um, there's a lot of hate out there for Twitter. Um, and but I found things like the Twitter historians community to be really lovely and helpful at times. Throughout your story that you shared today from when you first got excited about history back in high school and all the way through the steps that you've taken to where you are now, it sounds like you've been able to connect with mentors at really pivotal points. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of having good mentors along the way? Oh my gosh. Mentorship is one of the most important things. Um, My undergrad advisor, Renee Centiel at Case Western Reserve, um, was a hugely important person in my life and continues to be a friend. Um, She was actually my double advisor, both in history and American studies. And um, she is the person who taught me a lot about what a good professor is, what a kind and caring person can be in those kinds of um, professor-teacher relationships. Um, And of course, she also taught all my favorite classes. She's a historian of women and gender and childhood. And so I took nearly every class I could with her while I was an undergrad. Um, But there's also been times where I've real, like there are people that I've met along the way that, you know, I had great relationships with at the time and I didn't even realize how long those kinds of things would last. Like, for example, Karen Wolf, who's now the director of the Omaha Hunter Institute, um, she was on my master's committee. She was on my comps committee. I took a class or two with her during graduate school. Um, and since I've left graduate school, she's been so incredibly supportive of my career and what I've ended up doing. She's always proud to talk about how I was an Omahundro apprentice and now I'm working at the AHA. Um, 
And that was a little less expected because we weren't as close as, say, my undergraduate advisor and I were. Um, so those kinds of relationships have been super important. And I've also had kind of formalized mentoring. Um, one of the organizations I'm involved with as a member is the Society of Scholarly Publishing, which is a professional organization for people who work in association and scholarly publishing. And they have a mentorship program, which I signed up for while I was still working at ASCE. And um, that was super helpful in seeing kind of what sorts of careers I might go into. You know, I was still in my first year or so in kind of a full-time professional career world. Um, and I was paired with a mentor who's a director of a publishing program. Um, and so I got to learn a lot about what options I had. Um, so sometimes it sounds kind of hokey when you see like, oh, there's a mentorship program, but I actually got a lot out of it. And I, I hope other people take advantage of those opportunities because it can be a little bit scary, you know, like you're putting yourself out there and saying like, okay, pair me with a stranger and they're going to be my, my friend for a year or for six months or whatever. Um, but it can also be incredibly useful. And those are the kind of people that I emulate, that I hope to be like, that I want to be able to mentor people myself and to um, offer advice and help when needed and, you know, help give people a leg up who are coming up behind me as well. And for people who are listening and thinking, I don't know anyone to ask to be my mentor, um, because sometimes there are gaps in life where you have a need and you just don't see anyone around you who is available to help in the way that you need. Um, the AHA has a has a place on your website where people can sign up to ask to have a mentor. Is that right? Well, we have the Career Contacts Program. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So Career Contacts, it's not quite a mentorship program. It is more of an informational interview program. So people can sign up um, as junior contacts, meaning that you are someone who's maybe in a PhD program or you're early career and you're thinking about figuring out what your options are. So, you know, maybe you think a career in journalism or a career in policy work could be interesting, but you don't know anyone in those fields. You can sign up for career contacts as a junior contact. And um, then there are senior contacts, which are people who work professionally in a variety of different um, fields. So, you know, there's people with PhDs in history who work in tech or who work in um, corporate finance or in law or in all kinds of areas. Essentially, there are historians everywhere. And those folks who have signed up as senior contacts are willing to have uh, to be paired up with a junior contact and have an informational interview where you get the chance to ask them about what they do. So, you know, I'm in the in the database as a senior contact. So if someone contacted uh, as a junior contact and said, I want to learn about publishing, you might end up getting an inter informational interview with me or with someone else who works at, say, a university press or something who can talk to you about what that career is actually like, what kind of preparation you need to go into it, what it, their day-to-day -day life looks like, what kinds of advancement there is in this um, area. So you know, we recognize that when people, especially in graduate school, right, like most of the people you're in contact with are professors. So they understand what that career path is like. Um, and they may have 
connections to people outside of, of academia who they can help you reach out to. But there's more out there and maybe you just need a hand in finding the people to talk to. So career contacts is just one place where um, you could try to get a little bit more information about what's out there. So in the few minutes we have left, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what things you like to read? What's on your, what's on your to be read stack? Oh my God. I read so much. Um, I read 250 books in 2020. So, uh, I am a religious Goodreads user, so I'm able to keep track of everything. Um, so I'm actually reading right now a brand new book called 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, which is edited by Ibram Kendi and Keisha Blaine. I'm reading that for work. I'm going to be doing an interview with Keisha coming up soon. That's going to be um, going to an article for Perspectives. That comes out, uh, I think, February 2nd. So pre-order copy. It's really incredible. They worked with 80 historians, writers, journalists, um, some creative fiction people, and 10 poets to write a book that covers everything from 1619 with the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Virginia to 2019. Um, so each essay covers a five year chunk of time and they're very short. They're two at max, maybe five pages. So it's going to be an incredible teaching resource. And um, every 50 years there's a poem as well. So they're working with poets and it's just really interesting, really well done. I'm really looking forward to, um, talking with Dr. Blaine about how that project came together. Um, so I was actually reading that this morning, uh, getting ready to prep for that interview. Um, I also read a ton of fiction. So um, the book I started most recently, or finished most recently, excuse me, was a YA novel called The Silence Between Us. Um, the book I'm picking up this evening is called uh, The Care and Feeding of Ravenous Girls. I think that's the title, um, which is a book about uh, a woman who's incarcerated and her her family figuring out what to do. Sorry, Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls by Anissa Gray. Um, and also during COVID, I have read a obscene number of romance novels because they're light and you know exactly what's going to happen in the end. They're predictable. Um, so historical romance, contemporary romance, I've read a lot of those over the last year. Thank you for sharing that with us. It sounds like you read uh, very widely. <laughs> I try to, yeah. I'm really excited about the 400 Souls book. I'm also uh, waiting for that for hopefully a future podcast. So, Oh, that'll be really, yeah, I hope you're able to talk to them because it's it's such an interesting idea. This um, They're calling it a community history. Um, and you know, when, I don't even know how you wrangle 90 authors and get them all to turn in and their stuff on time and make sure it all fits in one book. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it. Yeah, it's fascinating that everything about the book, the making of the book, the writing of the book, all of it just sounds mm -hmm. so fascinating. So now we've given listeners something to add to their to be read list, as well as the other book title suggestions that you've made today. Yeah. Um, and check out, um, perspectives in, It'll go online in the month of February. It'll print in the month of March, um, uh, our piece about the book. So hopefully there'll be some insights in there from Dr. Blaine. 
And there's information on your website about how to get a subscription to Perspectives. And then the blog uh, is on the website at no cost if people can't afford to re-up their membership right now. Yes, exactly. And everything that publishes in print in the magazine goes up on the website. So you're not missing anything other than having a paper copy that you get to sit down and leaf through, um, which I do find enjoyable <laughs> getting to see the, the print version. But um, you're not missing anything if you are only reading it online. And can you tell listeners how to find Nursing Clio? Sure. We're at nursingclio.org, Clio, C-L-I-O, like the history stuff. Um, and uh, I hope you do visit that site as well. It's uh, it's a labor of love for all of us. Um, and I we publish usually three to four essays a week, including a Sunday news roundup of interesting articles from around the internet. And then the final thing I want to draw to listeners' attention is you talked about the annual meeting and there's information on your website for uh, student funds to help students afford to go to those if if they need that assistance. Yeah. So the annual meeting happens every January. It's usually very soon after New Year. Um, And our next meeting is going to be January 2020, the 6th through 9th in New Orleans, which I'm very much looking forward to going to New Orleans, um, especially in the winter. Um, and it, we're currently open for um, submissions to the program. So if you want to present your work, um, proposals are open right now through mid-February. And yes, there are ways for um, people to get a little bit of funding help to get there. So you'll just need to check out the annual meeting section of historians.org to find out more information. Thank you so much for being here today, Laura, and unpacking what the American Historical Association can offer us and what your work is as the managing editor. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Um, I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.